0: Welcome to this week's edition of America's Voice for Energy. I'm Marita Noon, and each week I have the opportunity to bring you a variety of experts who can enhance the topic of my weekly column. In preparation for writing this week's column, I talked to some people in my personal circle and asked them, are you aware that Earth Day is next week? No one seemed to know. When I asked, do you know that the Paris Climate Agreement is going to have a ceremonial signing on Earth Day, I got even more stares. No one knew what I was talking about. That helped me know how to set up this week's column, Earth Day's Anti-Fossil Fuel Focus Could Plunge Millions Into Green Energy Poverty. I started with a little bit of background on Earth Day and how it's changed now and how it's morphed into really being all about climate change. So we've got a variety of guests scheduled for this show to talk about this issue, and our first guest today is Calvin Beisner, who is the national spokesman for the Cornwell Alliance on stewardship, for the stewardship of creation. And Calvin has done, he's kind of really been one of the outspoken people on the forefront of this idea of energy poverty. And so uh, that's what we're going to start off with today, the idea of energy poverty. So Calvin, thanks for joining us once again on America's Voice for Energy.
1: Thanks very much, Marita. I'm glad to be with you, and uh, this is certainly something that matters a great deal to the Cornwall Alliance for the Stewardship of Creation because, you know, we're, we are all about promoting three things. Uh, the first is biblical earth stewardship or uh, what we call godly dominion, uh, which is wanting to, uh, to to enhance the fruitfulness, the beauty, and the safety of the earth. And the second is economic development for the very poor around the world, and the third is the gospel of Christ. And what we see is that the Paris Climate Treaty, uh, and it really is a treaty, by the way, though President Obama wants to treat it as if it's not, but the Paris Climate Treaty uh, really would be very harmful to the poor. Uh, and, and have no significant uh, beneficial impact on the environment. And so we at the Cornwall Alliance are, are really pretty concerned about this and the harm that it can do.
0: Yes, and, and this agreement-slash-treaty uh, is being signed on Friday in New York City at the U.N. headquarters, and what I, I am assuming will be a, um, have a lot of media presence and a lot of noise about it. Yes but but it's, it's really something that, as you say in, in a piece that you wrote, it's something that we should actually mourn, not celebrate.
1: Yeah, that's correct, because as a matter of fact, even complete implementation of the treaty would reduce global average temperature by the end of this century uh, for uh, by an amount that's uh, perhaps uh, a tenth of a degree Celsius, maybe a little bit less than that. Well, That simply is not even measurable on a global basis. It falls within the margin of error of the measurements, and it certainly has no significant impact on any ecosystem and certainly not on human life, on human civilization. But the cost of compliance will be many trillions of dollars that could otherwise be spent on things that would be of direct benefit to the poor, providing, for instance, uh, purified drinking water to the over a billion people now who still don't have access to that uh, providing good sewage sanitation providing access to uh, to on-demand, steady, reliable electricity to which well over 2 billion people in the world simply don't have access now, Uh, providing good health care, better nutrition, uh, better disease prevention, uh, things of that sort, spending, you know, every dollar you spend on any one of those would bring you far more benefits in terms of improved human health and longevity than any dollar spent on trying to reduce global average temperature but
0: yet the people that are pushing um, this uh, I like to call them warmest profiteers but the the people that are pushing this agenda are they're, they're not suggesting any of these things that you've just brought up. <laughs>
1: No, they're not. And in fact, they're, they're actually making a contrary claim. They're claiming that the poor suffer most from global warming. Well, you know, that's true of any kind of risk. Poor people are, uh, are going to suffer more from any sort of risk than non-poor people simply because poverty makes you vulnerable, whether it's to disease, whether it's to accidents, whether it's to, uh, to natural disasters, anything of that sort. Poverty makes you more vulnerable. Wealth makes you less vulnerable. But what that uh, entails, of course, is that wealthy people are therefore better able to protect themselves from any kind of risks associated with any kind of climate, whether the earth gets warmer or cooler, whether we have more or fewer storms, whether we have more powerful storms or, or less powerful storms, anything else like that, wealthier people can protect themselves. But the problem with the UN climate agreement is that what it calls for is activity that slows economic development in the poorest parts of the world. It also slows economic development in the wealthier parts of the world, but the poorest parts are the ones that are going to get hurt the most by slowing that development. We trap them in poverty, essentially, by preventing their access to the abundant, affordable, reliable energy, especially in the form of electricity, that is absolutely indispensable to lifting any society out of poverty and and keeping it out of poverty
0: yeah you know you make an interesting point about who's the most vulnerable and who's the least vulnerable i have written several times um when we talk about hurricanes and and increasing storms and so forth as as um many people do and i looked at you know what was what was one of the most devastating hurricanes in the history of the united states and um I believe you probably you may know this as well. It was right around 1900 in Galveston, Texas yes. and the, and you know why do we not see these kind of things today is because of energy really in, in, in that time they didn't have the radio alerts to alert them of a problem. They didn't have the cars to get out of the way. And uh, so they were somewhat sitting ducks, if I recall my, my story correctly. And uh, but but today we have we have that energy provided, um, broadcast. We have the vehicles, the cars, to get people out of there to bring them to safety.
1: Yeah, and we have the satellites and the planes to track the path of the storms to give us the warning in advance. Um, but it's not just simply that transportation use of energy or that communication use of energy. The energy allows us to be more productive about everything that we do because it harnesses energy that we could otherwise not harness. Uh, let me try to put that in a, in a way that <laughs> is... is Perhaps a little easier for some of us to grasp. You know, Most of us think, uh, if, if we're asked, how many calories a day do you consume? Well, we tend to answer something between about 2,000 and 3,000. For most of us, we, tr- we probably underestimate. But uh, assume for a minute that it was 3,000, which is actually a little bit above average for, for Americans. Uh, that's actually quite wrong. The average American actually consumes about 180,000 calories a day, but it's not most of it in the form of food. It's 60 times as much energy we consume in the form of machine energy, that is, energy that is converted into machine action, rather than just food energy. And so... You know, if, if, you, if you want to build a house, it takes energy to do that. If you do it entirely by food energy, that is, by the energy that goes through your body and the bodies of other people, well, okay, you need to hire a whole bunch of other people, but that's much more costly. If instead that energy comes to you in the form of machine energy, it's far less costly, so... You can build more structures and build them more solidly to withstand the brunt of a hurricane uh, if you've got plenty of energy. If you don't, you can't. So that's why if the same sort of hurricane were to hit, say, Miami today, um, it would do far more property damage because there's a whole lot more property there to be hit, but far less risk, you know, far less injury and far less death. To people, so you know, energy provides wealth, which protects people. That's why it's important not to suppress and and reduce our access to and use of energy.
0: Now, we in the United States have an abundance of energy that we use uh, most of us pretty freely at this point in time. But if this Paris Agreement and the Clean Power Plan, which is President Obama's centerpiece of that, goes through. What will that do to those who are living in what we call energy poverty? And if you don't mind, would you define ever energy poverty for us first?
1: Sure. Energy poverty is basically the situation where 10% or more of household income has to go just simply to energy. Um, and, and so that leaves you only 90% of the rest of your income to, uh, to buy food, clothing, shelter, transportation, education, Uh, all the other things that you want to use uh, from your income. And what happens to uh, people's income is if we implement the Paris Agreement here in the United States, if the United States fulfills its commitment under that obligation, well, the average family of four will experience, say, for instance, next year in 2017, a reduction in income approaching $2,500. And that reduction in income will continue every year from then on. The, the least it will be would be around the year 2026 at about a $300 reduction in income. But Which is only 20, 10 years from now. Yeah, and, uh, but by 2030, 2032, 2034, it's back up in the close to $2,500 a year reduction in income. And at the same time, they're going to face an increase in, uh, in electricity prices, an increase of about uh, 15 to 20% that will hold pretty much every year right across from now to 2040. So you're going to have a reduction in income. And you're going to have an increase in electricity price, which means you're going to push more people into energy poverty, and the people who are already in, in energy poverty will be in worse energy poverty. And essentially, what that means is that many people will face the choice: we either heat our home in the winter adequately to protect ourselves from the cold, or we food we, we, we eat we eat enough food. And you know, faced with that sort of a choice, most people will decide to go ahead and eat the food. But in Great Britain, over recent winters, they have experienced the ravages of energy poverty. Uh, in the winters of 2010-11, 2011-12, 13 14 etc., in those winters, the excess premature winter deaths uh, tabulated by the government increased dramatically by an average of about 7,000 people per year. Now, more people die in the winter because people are fragile to cold, especially the elderly. But as energy poverty grew, that pushed those death rates up by about 7,000 people per year each winter. Uh, that's something that I think Americans need to take very seriously because our population is about five times that of Britain and we have many of the much of that population living in areas that are much colder than Britain's. So on a proportional basis we could expect not about seven thousand extra deaths per year, but multiply that five times five up to thirty five thousand and then figure some sort of a multiplier on that because of the colder climate in which so many of our people live. It would be devastating yeah.
0: Wow, how time flies when you're having fun. We are already over time, Calvin, and I haven't given you the opportunity to tell people how to find your videos on this topic. So I'm going to let you have, just tell us that, and then we're going to have to say goodbye.
1: Right. We have a number of videos on energy poverty in our Greener on the Other Side video collection at Cornwall Alliance for the Stewardship of Creation's YouTube channel. We also have plenty more information at cornwallalliance.org.
0: Calvin Beisner, I appreciate your insight today, and we're out of time. We'll be right back with the next segment of America's Voice for Energy.
2: Did you miss the show that you really wanted to hear? All of our programs are available for download on americaswebradio.com and on iTunes. You can listen to your favorite programs on americaswebradio.com anytime you
3: like. Affordable health insurance was the promise of Obamacare. You can rest assured, knowing you and your family are protected. Coverage starts as low as $107 per month and also includes dental, vision, pharmacy, and holistic care. Liberty HealthShare puts you back in charge of your health. Visit them online at libertyoncall.org. Again, for a true affordable alternative to Obamacare, visit libertyoncall.org. Or call toll-free 1-800-714-6993 today.
2: You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening.
0: Welcome back to America's Voice for Energy. I'm honored to have with us for this segment Senator Jim Inhofe from Oklahoma, who is also chairman of the Senate Environment and Public Works Committee. And I quoted heavily, uh, Senator, from what you said last week on the Senate floor in my column this week, so I'm especially honored to have you with us. Well, and you're, we're talking you're, about... Go ahead.
4: Yeah, you're really, really nice. Because, you know, I, how long this issue has been there, Narika, we're, we're talking about back in in the in, uh, 1997 and, and before. And uh, so... It, the, the thing that you're talking about now is really kind of ridiculous, but no more ridiculous than all the other 20, uh, uh, 20 meetings that the United Nations have, has had in trying to promote this thing. So I always like to have people put it in the proper context. You know, we, way back in uh, in, 0, uh, in 97, when uh, the the president at that time, is Clinton and Gore, they went down to uh, bring this thing back, and everyone was rejoicing because the world was going to come to an end. It's because of man and uh, greenhouse gases and all these things. And, of course, we made it very clear at that time that we didn't join in with their uh, their faulty uh, uh, notions about what's happening in the world. So this and goes all the way that. back. And the one thing that I would want you to make sure that people are reminded of, nothing has changed since 1995 when we passed uh, 95 to nothing. Actually, I, I might have that date wrong. What was the date of that? It was... Yeah, it was 95, but it's 95%. Okay the vote. That was when we said if you come back from Kyoto and you sign something that does one of two things either hurts us economically or does not treat the developing countries the same as it treats the developed countries we will not ratify it. Period. That was 100% 95% who were present at that time voted in favor of that. Obviously that's the reason with all the noise that uh, Bill Clinton made and Al Gore made uh, they never did submit it for a They signed it, but never submitted it. Well, quite frankly, nothing has happened since that time to change that. And I I wrote a book about this that I I would – if you haven't read it, I'll send you a copy of it because it it goes back and gives the whole history (coughs) – how this whole thing was originally started by the United Nations in an effort for them to figure out some way not to be accountable to all the countries and to have their own source of funding, and that's that's what started this whole thing. And we've gone through every one of uh, of these vicariously, these meetings that take place every every December, but on a couple of them, um, I've actually attended them. And so, uh, you know, I've gotten used to being the bad guy, but, and nothing's changed.
0: And you you wear it well. You wear being the bad guy well.
4: Well, thank you. <laughs> yeah.
0: So what yeah. do you what do you think this this you know you've talked about Kyoto and what happened uh, there and that, that you the senators would not ratify it. What what's happening now on Friday for our listeners on Earth Day April twenty second we're going to have the ceremonial signing of the Paris climate agreement how do you and your fellow senators view this
4: well, I don't know how they view it, view it because there are a lot of them. If you keep in mind, when uh, uh, a, a lot of the members of the Senate are trying to resurrect this issue, now since we originally got into it way back in 2002, that was the first bill that was introduced. That was the McCain-Lieberman bill, and that was to uh, do some uh, enact some type of cap and trade uh, to right. stop people from emitting. Well. The problem with that was the cost of it was somewhere around four hundred billion dollars a year, and then later on we find out that that isn't going to resolve the problem. Any anything that we do just in the United States is not going to affect that. So to answer your question, let me just mention two of all these meetings that they had. One was uh, was in some place in Italy, Milan. It was in Milan, Italy, and I went over there. This is two thousand and three. And I uh, had to be the bad guy over there, and they actually had my picture uh, on a wanted poster on all of the telephone poles in Milan, Italy, because I was uh, questioning the science that they were talking about. Then came Copenhagen. You might remember Copenhagen in 2009. Sure. I know that you mm-hmm. were active into this issue at that time. Uh, I was, They were yes. the ones that were... In Copenhagen, they all went over there. Uh, Hillary went over there. Obama went over there. Nancy Pelosi went over there. Barbara Boxer went over there. And there are 196 countries in there that were all meeting to say. And we were our message to them was their message anyway. Going over was well, we in the United States are we're going to pass legislation so that we're uh, are going to uh, mandate the cutting of our emissions. Well, I went over at the end of that, and I had. All hundred and ninety six countries in one audience, and they all had one thing in in common, they all hated me because I told them that all the people I just mentioned, including hillary and and Obama, were lying to them that they were not going to pass anything. They didn't have become close to having the votes. And so, and by the way, I have to say this too, and this is very important. People have forgotten about this. At that time, the, the Obama appointee to be director of the uh, EPA was really a good person. Her name was Lisa Jackson. She had a problem with this administration, though, because she just couldn't tell a lie. So I asked her the question. I said, you know, I have a feeling that as I leave now today to go to Copenhagen for one day to tell them the truth, you're going to have a declaration of an endangerment in the United States. And she kind of smiled, and and obviously that was true. And this was in a committee hearing. I said, now, if that's true, it has to be based on science. What science are you going to use? And of course, she said, the IPCC, which is the United Nations. Well, it happened just by coincidence. It was a matter of days after that 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 the climate gate broke, and they find they had been rigging the science, and yet they admitted that they were using that as science. So... Now we have uh, Paris. They all got together in Paris, and the president went over, and, and uh, John Kerry went over, and they said, we're going to do all these things in the United States. We're going to reduce our emissions of CO2 by between 26 and 28% by 2025. That was the commitment that they made. Obviously, they weren't telling the truth because there's no way that we, they could do it. We've asked them what science to use. How are you going to do this? They won't respond. They won't even re- respond at all. In fact, the EPA, until I think tomorrow, uh, is going to be the first time that they finally come back and, and agree to be uh, to testify. And tomorrow is going to be is tomorrow uh, the 22nd or is it? Friday the 22nd. So this is going to be yes, the 21st. Friday the 22nd. And so the meeting, though, that we're having in the committee that I chair is going to have the EPA there trying to explain how in the world this could happen. Well, it's not going to happen. So for anyone out there who believes it's going to happen, I'll, I want to make sure to get this one last dig in there because then you'll understand why. I asked that uh, director of the EPA, the one that I like, not the one currently, uh, in, uh, live on TV uh, in, in before my committee. I said, if we were to pass any of these uh, cap-and-trade bills, or if we were to try to do it as the president is going to try to do through regulation, because he can't get it passed as legislation, will this have the effect of reducing uh, CO2 emissions worldwide? And she said no. And the reason is this isn't where the problem is. The problem is in China and India and Mexico, and they're not about to do it because they're sitting back hoping that we would do it, and they'll get the advantage of having our manufacturing base go to places like their countries, China. So that's what is happening right now, and uh, there's no reason for the president. In fact, he said he's not going to go up there. Here we're going to have representatives from 100, they are going to have representatives from 196 countries up there to celebrate something, and the president's not even going to show because he knows it can't be done. And by the way, let's don't forget that even if we said it could be done, there are now 27 states, including my state of Oklahoma, uh, that are filing lawsuits, and the United States supreme court has put a stay so it ain't going to happen and there's no reason to go to new york and i told all those people i've sent a notice out we'd love to have you here we want you to eat a lot of food spend a lot of money and maybe even make a trip down uh, highway 66 so you can see what real america is in my state of oklahoma but there won't be any kind of a meeting
0: well, you know they're gonna. Ha- You're going to hear, I'm sure, a lot of media on Friday, April 22nd. I'm oh. sure there will be a lot of pictures of dancing in the street and a lot of hoopla about this signing. Now, you mentioned the Supreme Court uh, decision putting a stay on this. How long? Uh, does that delay the implementation of this bill, of, of the Clean well, Power Plan I'm talking uh, about? The we, plan, if it, address
4: that. Well, of course, it's not going to be implemented, I, I don't believe, but nonetheless, if they were on full schedule, by the time the the, uh, the courts, uh, they, they have to wait until all the lawsuits are set aside or addressed in some way, and we have put down the earliest it could happen would be 2018. Now, 2018, Obama will be long gone, and I hope we don't have an extension of Obama named Hillary uh, in the White House at that time.
0: Now, we've just got a couple minutes left, but let me ask you real quickly, because I've been trying to draw attention to this issue all week, doing radio interviews myself and through my Mm -hmm. column, calling this... Uh, green energy poverty week trying to draw an awareness to that and in your comments on the senate floor last week you talked about how this agenda will raise energy rates uh, for americans can you address that
4: yes i will in fact i talked about harry alford harry alford is the chairman no the president of the American Black Chamber of Commerce. I think that's what it's called. And uh, Mm -hmm. he testified before our committee, and he has said publicly and repeated in the last week that if we are to pass the green uh, or the uh, uh, president's uh, uh, power plan it would have the effect of increasing the cost of electricity for uh, for black americans 26% and for hispanics 28% and he documented all of this as to why it would be it would be the most regressive program because those are the people that are forced to spend a higher percentage of their expendable income on things like heating your home and things that you have to you know that you have to have so not only is it is it expensive now in my state of Oklahoma, and I'll, I'll localize it a little bit. Every time there's a program that is uh, promoted from some of these left wingers up here, I go back and get the most recent uh, statistics in Oklahoma as to how many families in my state file federal income tax returns. And I do the uh, I do the math. Well, the cost of this would be a little over two thousand dollars a family, and by their own admission, it's not going to accomplish anything. So. Yes, that's a huge tax uh, increase on, on middle America, my state of Oklahoma, but also it's much greater than that in terms of percentage of expendable income for the poor people, for the disadvantaged, and for the minorities.
0: One last closing comment. Your colleague, uh, uh, Senator Whitehouse, would like people like you and me to be legally punished for our views. Well, Do you have a comment? Yeah.
4: Oh, I do, I, you know, and I'm sure that's a little bit tongue-in-cheek, but they are actually saying to the to the Attorney General, you should be prosecuting these people. because." I
0: know, I uh, thought, I thought, I watched that hearing, I watched yeah, it.
4: Well, but she, see, the difference is, you're not used to it, and I am. Uh, uh, <laughs> they've been after me for so many years, I can't remember which Kennedy it was, but uh, one of the Kennedy kids in, uh, said, I, Jim Inhofe, should be hanged for treason. Yeah, now, that that's getting pretty serious stuff, isn't it? It is getting pretty serious. <laughs> and and you know, the thing scary. that bothers me—what bothers me more than anything else—is that they have been able, the EPA has been able to get words out to his schools. I see an awful lot of the the young kids are taught that stuff in school as if it were fact, and that it really does bother me. I had my, one of my own granddaughters uh, come up to me. This is about seven years ago, and she said, Popeye, See my great—I have a, twenty kids and grandkids, and my grandkids wow. call me Popeye because it's I is for Inhofe. Okay, and they said Popeye. She said Popeye. Why is it you don't understand global warming? <laughs> this is my own <laughs> granddaughter. So now uh-huh. they're warping their minds in our public school system, and uh, we're trying to, uh, we're working on addressing that now. The bottom line is yeah. this: I'm so thankful that there are people like you around that will really look at it and see it for what it is. And uh, and again, that's why my book that I wrote that was three years ago, everything that I had predicted has now happened, including this Paris Agreement that uh, that they say they're going to have this week. Yep.
0: Yeah. We're out of time. I appreciate you taking time out of your busy day to talk to us. It's been a delight to chat with you, Senator Jim Inhofe from Oklahoma. Thank you for joining us on American Voice for Energy.
5: Watchdog is a term given an organization like the United States Justice Foundation, which since 1979 has been watching out, and when necessary, taking the appropriate action from testifying to litigating to protect our constitutional rights.
2: the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening.
0: Welcome back to America's Voice for Energy. This week we're talking specifically about the Paris Climate Agreement that's going to be signed in a ceremony at the U.N. in New York City on Friday, April 22, also known as Earth Day. And on the phone with us now, we've got David Kreitzer. And David is a Senior Research Fellow in Energy, Economics, and Climate Change at the Institute for Economic Freedom and Opportunity at the Heritage Foundation. Big, long title, but David's got a lot of great insight and information. He's been with us on America's Voice for Energy many times before. And uh, we're glad to have you back with us again, David.
5: I'm glad to be on. Thanks for having me.
0: Well, you know, in my column this week, I talked about a new report that you all at the Heritage Foundation just released on April 13th. And the report is titled, Consequences of Paris Protocol, Devastating Economic Costs essentially zero environmental benefits. And I quoted some of your report in my column this week. I mean, just a tiny bit because your report is pages long and I have a, a limited word count that I can work with. But you all had some very uh, interesting insights in your report that I hope that you'll share with us today on America's Voice for Energy.
5: Yeah, we, we took the Department of Energy's energy model. So this is not somebody, this is, this is the Obama administration's energy model. And we plug into it a, a carbon tax equal to what they say is their benchmark for what a carbon tax should be. Now, that means we probably are, are underestimating the cost and the job losses, because the regulations yes. they're likely to impose would, would not be as efficient, and if they actually started imposing a tax, they will jack it up so they'll get more revenue. But in any event, so we, we, we gave them the, the benefit of the doubt on a couple of dimensions, and we find that there's going to be significant economic impacts by 2035. That is, there will be an average shortfall of jobs overall across those years of 400,000. So, on the tip, pick a typical year, and we'll be falling 400,000 jobs below the employment potential we would have had without this carbon tax or without. The
0: now, are you saying that's going to be 4,000 jobs? I mean, 400,000 jobs every year,
5: each year more? No. No, that's that's the okay. sort of the accumulated amount below. Okay. And so there'll be and you pick a year, and there'll be four hundred thousand people that wouldn't have that don't have jobs that otherwise would have had jobs. Now some years it's a little higher, some years is a little lower. Um, you know, as the economy tries to rebound and then gets hit again by the ever increasing tax rate of that that uh, carbon tax schedule. Um, but on an average year, now uh, can
0: I in, uh, can I interrupt can for yes. a moment? Because honestly, mm-hmm. you know, as as much as I follow this. Which is far more than the average person, but perhaps less than you. Um, honestly, I was not aware that there is a carbon tax component to that. To this, uh, yes. Can you can you kind of explain that?
5: Yeah, let me make that clear. Right, right now, there's not a carbon tax component. There are targets for cutting CO2, and you can cut them by regulation. You can cut them by a carbon tax. Uh, you can cut them by mandates or subsidies or whatever. And. So what we took was a model, and we said, well, if the, the the theoretically the cheapest way to cut them in the most efficient way, though I still am not in favor of a carbon tax, would be a carbon tax as opposed to cap and trade or mandates and subsidies. In reality, we're going to have something more like cap and trade, more mandates, you know, more regulations. So the, the carbon tax is simply sort of giving us a lower bound. Our model is giving us a lower bound of the economic impact of meeting the carbon targets that have been set out. And we find four hundred you know, so that's the four hundred thousand jobs overall, two hundred thousand lost jobs in manufacturing, a family of four over the period twenty from now till twenty thirty five would lose an aggregate twenty thousand dollars. Aggregate GDP loss would be two and a half trillion dollars between now and twenty thirty five. So it's not trivial. As however what is trivial is the impact on global warming which might be, you know, a a 0.15 degrees Celsius or, or probably less. Yes, and
0: hasn't, it's been a while since I've written on this specifically, but hasn't the Obama administration even acknowledged that the amount, even if the United States did everything we've committed to doing, that the amount that, for example, the Clean Power Plan would impact global CO2 emissions is minuscule?
5: Right, they have. And, you know, Secretary Kerry even said if we got rid of everything, we planted a bunch of trees, we didn't emit any more CO2, he said it still wouldn't be enough to meet the targets. Um, And so the the couple of the climate scientists at Cato, Chip Knappenberger and Pat Michaels, have taken the EPA's climate model and estimated how much of a difference cutting CO2 in the U.S. would make, and we could get rid of it entirely by 2050, and you still don't hit two-tenths of a degree Moderation in warming by the end of the century. So it's and of
0: course that is all assuming you're you're basing that that statement on an assumption that CO2 emissions are driving um, right.
5: That's, the climate. A, that's that's taking the you know the the midpoint estimate from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change's estimate of how much CO2 impacts warming, um, and they it almost certainly is too high. So the the the, the numbers they give are on the high end of what is likely to happen from our action, so it's probably even less of an impact than that, and it's already trivial. So we have trivial or less than trivial (laughs) impacts.
0: So what were some of the things that you found really surprising when you all ran these numbers as you've talked about uh, using this kind of carbon tax model? What was surprising to you?
5: Well, you know, I, I've, we've been doing this. This is probably the fourth or fifth time we've looked at a broad carbon-cutting uh, uh, policy. So I, I'm, I'm pretty jaded. But okay. you know, the, the, the things that should surprise people is okay. that, that $2.5 trillion of lost GDP, the hundreds of thousands of lost jobs in manufacturing, and even more jobs lost uh, in the economy overall, because this, this flies directly in the face of all the people that say, well, the new, you know, green energy economy is going to be more efficient, sunlight's free, you know, it's going to help stimulate the economy, we're going to be so inventive that there won't be any problem. That's, you know, this is using the Obama administration energy departments. We took a clone of their energy model. We, we took all the computer code that they have, we, we, we uh, put it up on our computer, ran the numbers, and we've, we've checked some runs against what they've done, and we feel pretty confident that we're we're working the model correctly.
0: So why don't they come up with these numbers?
5: The amazing thing is they do, but they don't advertise them. You can go; uh, they haven't they haven't run the carbon tax of the social cost of carbon, which is the social cost of carbon is what the EPA estimates to be the damage of a ton of CO two emitted today that it will have until twenty. 300. so it's kind of bizarre that they even do it but that for an economist that would be the if you believed that um, then you would say that that's the level of the carbon tax at which the carbon tax should be set. And when we did that we got pretty close to the carbon cuts that the, the president has talked about um, any event but you can go they, they ran a somewhat more modest set of carbon taxes a few years ago and they have something called a table generator or table explorer or something and they had it out there what they don't have is they don't give the, some of the macro data they can they, they'll give you the um they'll give you the overall employment change in a percent and then you can have to multiply it or you can look at jobs um, they'll give you the electricity price changes which you know be you know, 10 20% something like that um but they don't really advertise it, and they don't give you employment by industry. But we, we have the same macro model that they use to plug uh, their energy model into, so we can break out some of those things that they don't. But they have done it. That's, that's the thing. Their economists and their Department of Energy know that there's going to be a cost to cutting CO2, and the people at the EPA who say it's going to create jobs are denying what the Department of Energy's model is telling them.
0: Interesting because I post my weekly column uh, every week. I mean, it's on a, as you know, it's on a variety of sites, including Breitbart and Town Hall and American Spectator. But I also post it on LinkedIn, and I I sort of have a a, a guy. Uh, I almost called him a gentleman, but I don't I don't really want to go there. But I have a guy uh, who who has taken to commenting on my column on LinkedIn every week, and he of course opposes. He disagrees. With right. what I say, and when I post something about how these um, plans are going to hurt the economy, he'll come back and cite a number of jobs that have been created in the green energy industry. Oh, uh, You know, 200,000 jobs in solar or whatever data point he throws at me. And I'm sure you're familiar with that kind of argument. How right. does the green energy job creation uh, compare to the loss of jobs in other industries.
5: You know, that, that, that's an excellent point, and, it could, and we should address it, and sometimes I forget because I've been doing it so long, I know. The, the, the energy model jobs that we talk about are a net job loss. They include those jobs that are gained in the green energy industry. Obviously, if you, you know, essentially outlaw uh, one type of energy, you're going to hurt the economy, reduce employment there, but you probably will stimulate some other sort of energy, you know, like solar or wind. But what matters is what happens to the employment overall? What happens to GDP? That is what happens to the pie, the size of the pie? It gets smaller. Now, the, the renewable sector gets a bigger chunk of a smaller pie, um, But everybody else gets a a smaller chunk, a smaller percent of an even smaller pie. So the the fact that he's talking about these studies and they all come from the solar industry, um, you know, here's how many jobs we've created, uh, you know, that's just not a legitimate way to look at the picture. You want to look at the overall impact, which this energy model was. It includes, you know, equations for, you know, the solar industries and for, uh, you know, when, when manufacturers start making. Uh, washing machines that use less energy that people have to buy. You know, all of those changes are built into the model. Not to say that it's perfect, but it is the Department of Energy's, the Obama Administration, Department of Energy's own energy model code that we've used. So, oh, it's kind uh, of he, overwhelming for my
0: little brain yeah,
5: well, <laughs> well, well, I'm glad well, to well, hear that. He, he's wrong. He's only looking at, you know, part of the picture and I suspect this is an exaggerated uh, impact that he's talking about, anyway. But the uh, if, you know you can look at the you know the Department of Energy's own energy model. Uh, if you go to the right play pages, you can see that they have run a carbon tax some years ago, um, and the impact was definitely negative on on employment and on um, on GDP. Well, I
0: appreciate your insight on that. I generally ignore him, but I'll have to go back now and say, make sure you listen to the show because we talked about you. We've got less than a minute left, David. I want to make sure that you tell people how they can get a copy of this study themselves.
5: Sure. All of the heritage studies you can get at heritage.org. So you could go there and click on my name. It's K-R-E first. So it's K-R-E-U-T-Z-E-R. But it it should be close to the top if you you put in... uh, you know, and the economic impact of Paris Agreement or climate policy, something like that. So heritage.org is the main place you want to go, and they'll be able to figure out how to find it from there. Well, good.
0: I appreciate your insights, and thanks for joining us today. I hope folks will will go to uh, to the Heritage, Heritage Foundation, find this study. I found it very insightful, even though, frankly, a lot of it was over my head, but that's why we appreciate le- people like you, David, who can do those
5: numbers. Well, thank you for having me on. I'm always glad to have another outlet uh, and to have somebody good like you to talk to.
0: (laughs) We appreciate your insights. Thank you, David Kreitzer, and we'll be right back on America's Voice for Energy. Please stay tuned.
6: Whether cruising the Strip in a 57 Chevy or taking the family on a vacation in a 71 Oldsmobile Vista Cruiser, You need to tune in to Classic Cars with Steve Ronaldo and Jim Weber every Saturday from 8 to 9 a.m. on americaswebradio.com. With all the back and forth in today's politics, it seems as though the Constitution gets lost in the mix. If you want to brush up on your Constitution, then join Michael Conley every Wednesday from 4 to 5 p.m. for the show Our Constitution on americaswebradio.com. Did you miss a show that you really
2: wanted to hear? All of our programs are available for download on AmericasWebRadio.com and on iTunes. You can listen to your favorite programs on AmericasWebRadio.com anytime you like.
3: Affordable health insurance was the promise of Obamacare. But for many, the government mandate caused more problems than it solved. This is Dr. Elena George from Medicine on Call. And I want to tell you about a truly affordable alternative allowed under Obamacare. Visit them online at libertyoncall.org. Again, for a true affordable alternative to Obamacare, visit libertyoncall.org or call toll-free 1-800-714-6993 today.
2: You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening.
0: Welcome to our closing segment of this week's edition of America's Voice for Energy. I'm pleased to have back with us again for this segment, Myron Ebel, who is the director for the Center for Energy and Environment at the Competitive Enterprise Institute. And we're going to talk specifically in this segment about that Paris Climate Agreement. We've heard all of our other guests have kind of talked about it Uh, mentioned it in their areas of expertise, but now we're going to really look at what is the Paris Climate Agreement. And so, Myron, thanks for being willing to join us to address this topic today.
6: Thank you for having me, Marita.
0: Now, I call this the Paris Climate Agreement because that's what the media calls it, and I find that um, when I'm linking to mainstream media reports and I call things something different from what they do, you know, the assumption is I'm wrong. I get this all the time when I'm speaking to oil industry folks and I talk about fracking and I spell it with a C, with a K, they often correct me and say, no, there's no K in fracking. But, you know, when the mainstream media all writes it with a K and I don't, I look like I'm the one who's wrong. So they call it the Paris Climate Agreement. Uh, but but you you see this as really as a treaty. Can you explain?
6: Yes. Well, it is a treaty. Um The underlying agreement. You know
0: what? Let me let me back up for just a sec. Let's go back before we get into is it a treaty or or agreement. Let's go just back a little. What is this? When we talk about Paris, for people who don't follow this closely, can you give a little background first?
6: Yes, the U.N. Framework Convention on Climate Change was agreed to at the Rio Earth Summit in 1992. That's the underlying climate treaty the U.S. ratified it in 1992. In 1997, we had the Kyoto Protocol. The United States never ratified that agreement, so we never became a part of it. And now, in 2015, in December, the same U.N. climate conference came up with the Paris climate treaty and that is uh, a new agreement that is under the underlying Framework Convention on Climate Change and it commits the people who who become part of it the countries that become part of it to a perpetual effort to reduce emissions uh, from from here on out
0: and that's this agreement is what's being signed in uh, New York City at the UN headquarters on Earth Day
6: Yes, that's right, and in fact, um, it, it now looks like there will be at least 147 countries that will sign it at UN headquarters on Friday, which we call in this country Earth Day, but the United Nations has officially designated April 22nd as International Mother Earth Day. and it's. Oh, I haven't heard
0: this. This is new to me.
6: Yes, International Mother Earth Day, and as my colleague R.J. Smith always reminds us, it's actually Lenin's birthday. So, yes, there's a lot, and, and supposedly there's Friday. no coincidence there. Uh, well, there, there there is there is a uh, uh, no coincidence there, but so they will be signing this on Friday, um, and the United States will be one of the signatories. There'll be fifty some heads of state or Prime Minister's there, but not President Obama. He will be in Saudi Arabia, so I expect it will be Secretary of State John Kerry.
0: And I assume we're going to have a lot of media fanfare about this. Yes. Okay. So that sets sets up kind of what we're talking about here. So now we're, we'll go back to the agreement versus treaty
6: topic. Well, it's a treaty. Uh, there's uh, The problem that the Obama administration has tried to get around is that they want to sign a very bad agreement that will be very bad for the U.S. economy, but they don't want to have to submit it to the U.S. Senate because it requires a two-thirds vote to ratify a treaty under the Constitution, and there's nowhere near uh, even 50 votes for ratifying it. So. They want to get around that, and they want to do something that is really illegal and unconstitutional by signing a treaty, pretending it's an executive agreement, just an agreement that the president made, and then start using it like a treaty. That is, say, this, this has legal teeth, and we will start enforcing this. And, and the president has, in fact, said this. He said after the Paris negotiations in December... Uh, I don't think even if a Republican is elected president next year, I don't think he'll be able to withdraw from Paris because the international pressure will be too great. So he's already saying that it's going to have consequences, uh, but somehow he wants to get around the Senate. Now, everywhere else in the world, uh, every other country considers it a treaty, and they're going through their normal ratification processes.
0: Hmm, That's an interesting angle. I wasn't aware that every other country was going through normal ratification
6: processes. Yes, and in fact, Fiji uh, did not have such processes, as I understand it, so they said, well, what, what do other countries do? Oh, they send it to their parliament and have the parliament vote on it, so we'll do that too. So, uh, and in fact, uh, Ban Ki-moon, the Secretary General of the United Nations, did an interview with Kim Strassel of the Wall Street Journal, which was published uh, recently, and he said, uh, this is an exact quote, uh, this is the Secretary General, this is an international agreement, thus it's obligatory. It's not that all the clauses, all the articles are obligatory, but core elements are. And then Ban Ki-moon went on to say, when asked about, well, you know, the Republicans in the Senate oppose this, and so the president isn't going to submit it uh, to to the Senate for ratification. And Ban Ki-moon said, quote, I'm concerned, but I do appreciate President Obama's strong commitment. He knew that with all this opposition of the Republican Party, he may not be able to have all this legally through a legal process but he also has executive power. He will do whatever he can under his executive power.
0: So specifically, what is it he's planning to do under his executive power to meet this uh,
6: agreement-slash-treaty? He's, he's, they're going to sign it on Friday, and then they're going to deposit our instruments of ratification, which in this case the President thinks he can get away with just sending a letter to the United Nations saying we're now officially a party to the treaty, they won't call it a treaty. They'll say to the agreement, and then mm-hmm. they will they will start using it uh, internally to uh, cajole uh, Congress, the next president, and the courts, and and state legislatures into doing things because we have to do these things because we're obligated to do them because we signed this and, and became a party to this agreement. So it's very dangerous because what they the the uh, our our pledge as part of the uh, treaty, is that we will reduce our greenhouse gas emissions by 26 to 28% below 2005 levels by 2025. So the, the policies that President Obama is currently trying to get through by regulation rather than through law, through going to Congress, These, for example, the EPA power plant rules are the biggest part of our pledge. Sure. Steve Yule at the US Chamber of Commerce has estimated that if all of these things are accomplished that the president is trying to do through regulation and executive fiat that will not get us uh, much beyond 50% of the way towards our pledge under Paris. So we're going to so as soon as we sign this and become a member of it all the people who are for it President Obama, Secretary Kerry, on down, and all the environmental pressure groups are going to say, "Oh, we have got to adopt some more policies because we've promised this under Paris, and now we're obligated to it." So this is this is a this is a huge deal. I mean, it's this is not. Some people on 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 the right have who, who haven't followed the process very closely have said, "Oh, well, it's not legally binding, so we don't have to worry about it; it'll just go away." No, it's not going to go away. It's going to be used in the courts in Congress, the next administration, and in state legislatures.
0: So let's just assume, um, because this is what it looks like in t- today, let's just assume Donald Trump is the president, the next president. Uh, and I'm not saying that I'm for him or against him. I'm just saying let's assume that. He's made it very clear that he is not a believer in climate change. He's made it very, very clear in his book, Crippled America, Chapter 6, His Energy Policy. Um, what could he do? Or anyone like him. I mean, it, it really any of the Republican candidates have the same basic view.
6: Yes. Well, let me uh, let me go through what what two candidates actually said. Um, Marco Rubio, when he was still running uh, in October, he gave an uh, last October he gave an energy speech in which he said, "If elected president, I will take whatever agreement mm-hmm. comes out of Paris, and I will submit it to the Senate." for its advice and consent with the understanding that they'll defeat it. And then that will be an end of it. We will not be a party to it. It will have been defeated. Ted Cruz said after Paris in mid-December, but Paris concluded on the 12th of December, he said, if elected president, I will withdraw from it. Now, I like Rubio's version better, and that's what I'm promoting, that it needs to be submitted to the Senate. So it's it, it goes through the the formal process of ratification and it's defeated, and if, and therefore if, rejection. Yeah, if the president just withdraws from it, the next president could get back into it. So, I'm uh, now with with Trump. He's uh, he's not a believer in global warming. He said that a lot of these EPA regulations are killing the economy, and I assume that the EPA power plant rules are part of that. Uh, Uh, list that, that that you would come up with if if you wanted to put flesh on that comment so i assume that he's pretty hostile to this now what he might actually do i don't know you know he he seems to like to wing it and do things on his own yes well yeah we do know that he also likes to make deals so i you know i don't know but i i would hope that he would adopt the position of marco rubio and say uh This agreement is a treaty, and under Article Two, Section Two of the Constitution, it's my responsibility to submit it to the Senate for its advice and consent. The Senate could then take it up and defeat it, and then we would be done with it. Now, there would, as President Obama has said, there will be a huge international outcry, and uh, you know we don't know whether uh, uh, Donald Trump would like to be. Uh, internationally very unpopular. Uh, President George W. Bush was very unpopular in 2001 when he announced that he would not submit the Kyoto Protocol to the U.S. Senate for ratification, and therefore it was dead. Uh, but, of course, if he had submitted it, the Senate would have defeated it. So, I don't, you know, it seems to me it would be better to have the Senate on your side against international pressure, because then you could say, hey, look, yeah. not only am I against this, but the U.S. Senate's against it. So you guys are going to have to go, you know, uh, just get used to it. Well, I
0: certainly see the wisdom of your plan. We're down to about 40 seconds left. As I cited in my column, Reason Magazine pointed out what happened to the two countries who backed out of Kyoto after they'd legally signed it, which is Japan and Canada, and basically nothing
6: happened to them. Right. That is that is correct, and so you know I, I think this is a this is a momentous decision. Uh, what's going to happen with the Paris Climate Treaty? And I think uh, all people who oppose uh, this kind of global warming energy rationing agenda, uh, whether it's domestic or international, should be uh, talking this up and saying this is a treaty. It has very serious consequences for the United States and for the world in terms of energy rationing policies that will make us all poorer. And uh, we should rec- we should demand that the Constitution be followed.
0: Now. Yeah. Well, interesting stuff. It's going gonna, it's gonna to be fascinating to see how the next uh, few months play out and, uh, and who ends up in the White House. We've been talking with Myron Ebell, the Director for the Center for Energy and Environment at the Competitive Enterprise Institute. Myron, thanks for sharing your insights on uh, the Paris Climate Agreement slash treaty with us. You brought a lot of, lot of information for us. Thank you so much. And that, that's it for America's Voice for Energy for today. Join us again next week. Thanks for listening.